Hey guys, welcome to the Improvement Podcast, where the mission is to help young men find clarity and fulfillment in their lives through the pursuit of purpose. On today's episode, we have another special guest. He is a marathoner, boxer, and owner of X Factor Consultants. We have Anthony Olampi. Thank you for coming to the show. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Great. <laughs> I would hope so. All right. <laughs> is it okay if I'll call you Tony? Go for it. Yeah, I feel like the relationship is at least casual enough for that. Huh? Oh, yeah. yeah. To not have to call you Anthony throughout the interview. Only my, my parents call me Anthony. And that's like uh, when you're in trouble. More huh? so like when they were yelling at me from downstairs. But, you know, uh-huh. now they live in a ranch. So I don't have to deal with that. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that in your own house. <laughs> One story, now, right? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Well, yeah, um, for the people who aren't familiar with the work that you do, could you tell them a little bit more about what you do and give some context? Sure thing, yeah. Uh, so I actually originally came from the world of video game development back in a previous life. I worked in the industry for a number of years. That's what brought me to the Austin area originally. I live, I grew up in Connecticut. Uh, so I came down to Austin working in video game development. And then about six years ago, I started my consulting firm. Uh, so we were X-Factor Consultants. We're a web app development and video production consulting company. So we help businesses develop strategy around those technologies of how to use it most effectively in their business. And then we also execute. We do the work ourselves. A lot of consultancies shop out the actual doing to third parties. Uh, but we like to do the work ourselves. Keeps us sharp. And I like getting my hands dirty still. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's great work. We work with everyone from small businesses to nonprofits to, you know, publicly traded companies. So never a dull moment. Okay. Love it. Love it. And so it's interesting how you moved from doing the video game development into the stuff that you do now, having your own company, but on top of that, some of the hobbies that you picked up are, uh, are unique too. And so let's kind of get into that. What do you think led you to become a marathoner and boxer? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so I was not a good runner as a child. We'll start with that. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was, it was by far one of my weakest points. Um, I was a very overweight kid, actually. By the time I was 16, I weighed almost 300 pounds. I was a big guy. I was a a stereotypical nerd in every sense of the word. Uh, And I had actually been programming from a very young age. I got into coding end of fifth grade. So I was like 10, 11 at the time. Um, So I've been doing it for a long time. That was my world. And I love computers and I remember with, with the running part, at least, um, whenever the mile run would come around, I would always say that I had asthma to get out of it, which worked when I was cute and little. But then when I was cute and big, it didn't really work as well. So <laughs> a lot of very frustrating laps. Um, and when I got older, when I was in college, I really decided I wanted to get in much better shape. Um, and I knew running was by far my weakest point as far as athletics go. So I was like, well, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, so I got into running, um, and I used to, originally I had just taken walks, long walks in this bike trail near my neighborhood. Um, but when summer came around, the mosquitoes started coming out and I hated the fact that they were ruining my walking trail and being the stubborn child that I was, I refused to not use that trail anymore. So naturally the only way to beat the mosquitoes was to outrun them. Uh, so I started jogging. <laughs> <And> that <laughs> was kind of the, the exciting force, which is kind of funny. It was that combined with never just one thing, right? Was, uh, there were two other guys that I'd grown up with, um, Chris and Mitch that lived in my, my neighborhood. And uh, they'd both been bigger guys as well. And I remember Chris joined the army and I would see him doing his PT every day. And one day I was in a walk and he was on a run. He was like, run with me. I was like, please don't. He's like, no, come on. I'm like, fine. So I run with Chris and I have, I ran a lap with him, which was great. Then later on, I saw Mitch get in great shape too. And Mitch was a total stoner. 
I was like, this is the least motivated person that I know. So if he can do it, I have no excuse. So all those things sort of conspired together to get me to start running. Um, and I started running and I, I, I kept doing it. And after a few years of running three, four miles, maybe uh, one day, I remember just being outside and it was the perfect weather, the perfect conditions. And I ran a half marathon inadvertently. Uh, and when I did that, I realized, oh, wow, maybe I could, I could go all the way. Inadvertently, just like. Yeah, well, I was like, I got to like eight miles. My record had been six. And I was like, well, I'm not tired yet. I might as well keep going. And then it was nine. And then it was 10. And, and by the time you hit 10, you're like, well, at this point, just, just go with a 13. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It, was, it kind of gradually became that. Um, I didn't walk for four days after, but it was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Yep. I actually have an interesting story about that. That's kind of similar. So uh, they had a guest I had on the podcast, maybe like six months, maybe eight months ago. Mm -hmm. And a challenge he had given me because running is not something I like to do either. Uh, He said, you know what? You should build up to running 10 miles. And so at first I was thinking no way in the world, I would just go out and run 10 miles. But he told me to like, go do one mile one day, two miles the next day. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to lie. I didn't do any of that. But then it came to the day that I was supposed to do the 10. And so I'm just going to do it. (laughs) And when I tell you that I couldn't walk for like, it felt like a week. It was. And then on top of that, it's not like I went out and did this early in the morning or whatever. I started doing this maybe like 10, 11 o'clock. It was just blazing out there. And I felt when I got in the car, I felt like I was going to die. And my feet like. And we're like all like had these hot spots all on them and everything. It was terrible. So I can only imagine like how it felt running the 13. Oh yeah. Like cool. if that wasn't something that you had planned to do, at least I could kind of like mentally prepare and think, okay, this isn't going to go well, <laughs> but it just, it just makes me think about that. Yeah. And those longer distances, once you get in the 20 plus mile range, especially that's, that's nothing prepares you for that until you just do it. And then you get there and then you realize, but then all the things that led up to that seem a lot less challenging, you know, in mm-hmm. reflection, which is cool. So, oh, yeah. Well, that 10 miles is definitely challenging because I, I had yeah. to stop a few times, but it yeah. just kind of made me think of that experience. But something I couldn't help but think, too, uh, just from you kind of talking about how you got into marathoning and then just from mm-hmm. what I know about you from what we talked about is uh, some experiences that you've had. I feel like in a way, uh, like a near death experience that you had. Oh, yeah. Might have been one of the things that led to you being in the mind frame to even get into doing something maybe like like marathoning. Would you say so? For sure, yeah. Um, I've, I've had a number of those, and they've had different. I've had different kinds of really acute existential threats that I dealt with in my formative years um, that I see as really wonderful opportunities that I was privileged to have. I'm really thankful that I had those experiences, um, and. I think before you can talk about the value of facing threat, you have to start with understanding how important it is to have the right framework within which to process it. Because there's no shortage of people out there who have faced dangerous situations and drawn all the wrong conclusions from them, right? Like, like a lot of times victims of abuse, for instance, end up becoming abusers themselves. Like it's not, it's not that just, you know, being in a dangerous situation is going to make you like a, a better person somehow. You have to have the right foundation to work with. And I'm really thankful that I had Part of it was like the right raising combined with my own personal interests and my own attitudes that were, I think, in a sense, innate that helped. Mm -hmm. Um, I was raised in a very religious family. My parents are very Catholic. Um, And within a lot of religions, really pretty much all of them, there is some sort of parable or some sort of theme that talks about the value of pain 
um, and how there can be positive things that emerge from that, right? That it's, there's a language trap we fall into where we, we will say that a thing is good or bad. And very rarely is anything, any idea or object or person or anything else, strictly one or the other. It's pretty rare. It's more about your perspective and the dimensions that you choose to focus on when you're evaluating that thing that is good or bad, but not the whole thing, right? When you're working out, your, your muscles are forming micro tears in them. You're, you're hurting yourself. You're causing yourself pain, but it, it's making you stronger, right? right? So even damage to the body is not in and of itself a negative thing inherently. It's all about order of magnitude and what you do with it, right? Um, so the fact that I had uh, that that upbringing where, I mean, especially in Christianity, the crucifixion is symbolically very important because it shows how a horrible, horrible thing can result in, in beautiful things, right? So having that as a starting point was very valuable. And especially the fact that my mother uh, has, has a degree in theology and was able to articulate all of that in, and, and also in communication as well. She's a master's in journalism. So it's a very effective speaker about those things. That was really helpful to me because I would, she was able to talk about those things in a way that would make sense to me and that I could glean value from. So that was really valuable. Uh, and then the other side of it is I have always been very interested in the sciences and in history, uh, the history of us as a species, not just the planet ourselves, but, but our legacy as human beings. That's very, very important to me. And throughout our really rich and amazing history, there are so many the infinite number of stories of people in terrible situations enduring and making the most of them. And I was able to learn from the attitudes that they had. And because I was exposed to that early on, when I encountered my own struggles and hurdles, I was already primed to have the right attitude and the right lens within which to view that. Right. Right. So because I had that foundation, I was able, I think, to draw a lot of the right conclusions from a lot of the existential threats that I have. And I'll talk about what some of those were. So uh, for starters, this was one. There's a few different kinds. Um, I, I had a fairly rough upbringing because I spent about half of my school years in the inner city. Um, but I also lived in a, a number of different situations. So uh, I grew up in a, the first half of my childhood, I was in a pretty middle class neighborhood in a town called Windsor in Connecticut. Connecticut's an interesting state because it has some extraordinarily wealthy towns like Greenwich, for instance, and it has some very poor towns uh, with some really rough areas that has a bunch of stuff in between. So you really get the full spectrum. Uh, and I lived in and spent a lot of time in all of them. Um, so I grew up in a pretty normal middle class town for Connecticut. And then we moved to a town called Glastonbury, which is much higher end, even sounds like it, Glastonbury, right? Very different kind of place. Uh, and, uh, but there my dad had like a small farm, um, just not commercial, it's just, he's Italian, he wanted to have a farm, why not? Okay, so I have harvested corn at five in the morning. It sucked, but I've done it. <laughs> you know, uh, we've eaten chickens that we've raised. Like I've had, I've had the suburban life, I've had the kind of farm life, uh, but then I went to half of my school years, middle school and high school in the inner city, uh, which has some very, there's some very rough neighborhoods in, in Hartford and East Hartford, which is where I spent a lot of time in Connecticut, you know, where you'd see bullet holes in the walls in the commute. Um, so that was a very, there's a stark contrast between all of those different experiences or different kinds of places. So I got to have a really even spread of a lot of different experiences, a lot of different people. And especially in my times in the inner city, I dealt with, I mean, there were, there were, there were drug addicts at my school and there were kids that had been arrested and criminals uh, and there were wannabe gangbangers. And then there were a few real ones too. And I had to deal with all of them. And I'm really happy that I got to see all of that because whether you encounter that or not, those people are out there. And you can either wait for them to come to you or you can you can confront it, you can see it, you make the best of it. 
Um, so I guess as far as the specific threats that I have faced that I've identified that were very valuable to me, um, I've had threats from people and I've had threats from nature. Um, what, I, I would say probably the first real threat that I ever dealt with was the living under the cloud of possible neurocancer. So when I was 11 years old, I started getting headaches um, and I was brought in to have an MRI done and they found that I had three cysts in my brain, um, which having cysts isn't necessarily a super uncommon thing. Having multiple ones and having them young, different story. A lot of people develop them you know, over time, but that was definitely scary. And I remember the adults in my life trying to downplay the importance of them. But you know, when you hear whispers like neurocancer, you you know, and you, and you can tell uh -huh. too, the looks in their faces, the worry, the fear, right? Uh, I, I just remember thinking I'm 11 years old and it's, the ride's already going to be over in a way, right? Um, and I, I don't think at that age, I had quite completely processed the significance of that. It definitely it was something that more, I think I gained more value out of it upon reflection later on down the line, actually. Um, but, you know, it, once you're in a situation like that, I was getting scans every few months for a decade until I had uh, graduated and they told me that, okay, you're probably fine. Um, but yeah, when you have a regular appointment to go get your head scanned to make sure you're not, you're not going to die of neurocancer, you know, that, that definitely, especially at a young age, it's sort of a shoulder shaking moment of like, Hey, the little things matter, the little threats, the things that you can't see, they're still there and they can have a very big impact. Right. So that was the first one. And that was sort of an unseen, more subtle threat and one of nature, um, dealing with people. Uh, for sure that I dealt with when I was in those, those rougher parts. Um, I, let's see here. I fought off two attempted stabbings. Uh, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and some very angry people decided to start a fight. I've, I've been on the receiving end of a gang beat town just being in the wrong place. And I was fortunate that I was a fat kid actually, because that probably saved my life because you only get kicked in the stomach so many times safely. No, for real. Like uh, I shouldn't be laughing survive at that, orca <laughs> attacks because they're fat. <laughs> so actually, yeah, there's a great example of looking on the bright side. <laughs> you compared it to attacking um, an orca. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. think you were that big. I mean, 300 pounds is kind of big, but uh, I, I think you got to, yeah. But, <laughs> but, but really, uh, that's that's a moment there where when you're confronted with the possible savagery of human beings, right? And that's something I want to talk about too, of what what we are and why I think it's important to consider our nature as people when you're thinking about threat and why it has value. Um, because if you don't understand people and our place in the ecosystem, how can you hope to understand yourself? So I'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, yeah, so I, I've dealt with those kinds of situations. Um, and growing up on a farm too, I've, I've seen predators eat our livestock. I, I remember everything when we had hawks kill chickens to a neighborhood dog, a just beautiful domesticated husky. Uh, after my dog died that I grew up with, he used to, you know, the presence of that dog used to discourage larger predators from coming in, but then he died and the chickens were still there. And one day this husky gets in the backyard and it mauled all of them to death. Um, and it was just a striking image that's still in my head of this white husky with just blood all over it. Uh, that that kind of sticks with you when you see something you've been taking care of for a long time. And I was, it was too fast, nothing I could do. We didn't have guns in my house at the time. So I couldn't, I couldn't stop the thing. So I just had to sort of hopelessly run around trying to chase this thing away that was trying to kill and successfully killed all of our animals. Um, so I've, I've encountered threat of the unseen kind from nature. I've encountered the obvious kind from actual predators and I've encountered it from people uh, and I'm still here. Right. And I, I think I'm, 
uh, in a much better place in my life now than I was then, for sure. And I'm really thankful that I had all those experiences and that I was able to to survive them and approach them with the right attitude. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the breakdown of the, I guess, the big things that I've encountered. Uh, so do you have any questions on that? Yeah, a question I have about that is what would you say is the primary lesson that you took away from all those tragedies that you went through that's uh, shaped your outlook on life? Oh, yeah. Um, it's more confirmed what I've read about leading up to that. You know, again, I've always been a student of history and I love learning about us as people and our legacy. And there's a difference between theory and application. You can study something as much as you'd like, but it never quite feels real until you've been in it, right? And it shouldn't. Like you should not feel completely confident in your ability to handle something if you've only ever studied and simulated. At the end of the day, there's a line you have to cross or you have to know, okay, well, I've done it. And if you're really, if you're as confident having never done something before as you are after, then you have a problem. <laughs> you got to work on that. That's arrogance. And that's not a good thing. Um, so I was thankful that I got to go from theory to application and I got to know that I would be okay. Right. And I think that's a really valuable thing. So there's a confidence that comes from that, that you can only have if you've experienced. Um, and that I think leads quite nicely into, um, well, why is any of this even notable to begin with? The, the fact, why are we even talking about like life or death experiences? Why is that something worth talking about? Because a thousand years ago, even a few hundred years ago, it probably wouldn't have been. I think it's important to frame where we are, us in the West at this point in time uh, to be, it's important to acknowledge it's a very special and, and rare and frail place that we're in. Um, the fact that we are so confident that we have such a command over our existence, that we can be surprised by danger is a really special thing. And it's a thing that is dependent on a near infinite number of complex systems underneath us, always working all the time to maintain that position, right? And that's really special and it's precious and it's not something to underestimate. Um, I'll give you an example of, of this. Uh, the preservation of wild tigers is an example I like to use to illustrate just how special a position we're in is. So, so do you have any feelings about that? Any thoughts of like, we, we invest, we invest about $80 million a year in order to preserve wild tigers, $80 million. So how does that feel to you? It's not something I've really given a lot of attention to, but you know, it kind of sounds absurd. It makes yeah. me wonder, you know, just how much would it hurt the environment if tigers, if those tigers went extinct? I mean, yeah. I wouldn't know for sure, but I couldn't imagine it being that big of an impact. Right. So it's like, it's not like notable or whatever, right? Like, okay. Money going to wild tigers. Great. Well, Think about how this conversation might go a thousand years ago, roughly. If we were to, if I were to ask the same question, preserving tigers, the response uh, would probably be probably wouldn't go yeah. well. Yeah, I'd be probably like, like they're, they're killing people in our, in our villages. Yeah. yeah, yeah, <laughs> really. And it's but but think about how how bizarre that is, mm -hmm. right? Tigers are a natural predator of us. Like they used to eat us in large quantities until fairly recently, the, you know, the invention of ranged weapons where we can stop them before they even come to us. Like that's really what did that. But up until that point, if you wanted to fight a tiger, you had to get in its face with like a spear. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to fight a wild tiger with a spear. That I'm was a real threat. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we invest $80 million a year into keeping our own natural predators alive. Now, why on earth would we do that? Right. The thing of the thought process behind that, you would only invest substantial resources of your own to preserving something that would literally eat you if you were absolutely confident, not just that 
it can't, but that your own position is so extremely stable that you can literally afford to dump millions. Cause it's really, it's wealthy people that are doing this, you know, for whatever their charity of the year is that you can afford to expend that level of your own resources to preserve your own natural enemy, just to flex for social status, right? We've got, we went from being hunted by these things to using them as pawns in our own appearance games. That is astonishing. Nothing else on this planet can say that. And I use that as an example to, to point out, we are the apex predators of this planet, which is a, comfort, which is a statement that a lot of people find sort of uncomfortable to think about, but, but we are. So, and we have been so extremely effective that we can prop up our own predators for our own amusement, right? And we have done that for so long to the point that we now have entire generations of people who can live completely unaware of their own natural place in the food chain because we've been so effective at being that. You know, it's a rare person where if you said, are you a predator? They would say, yeah. They wouldn't, at least in the West, they probably wouldn't identify themselves as that, but we are. And, and that's not just even an idea, it's physiologically. There's so much about our, our physiology that informs that. Uh, mammalian and reptilian predators have eyes in the fronts of their heads. Prey has it on the sides. And there's, there's a big reason for that. Like, prey wants to know where the predators are coming from. So they want to have as wide a field of view as possible, right? Cows, horses, anything else you can think of that's looking to pack animal or herd animals that are looking for predators. They, they want to be able to see so that they can warn the others in their herd to run away. Prey ha predators have it on the front because we focus on a target to take it down, right? Where are our eyes? Uh, beyond that, uh, our legs, actually. This is something that people don't really think about, but uh, I talked about my running experience. Well, where did that ability to run come from? Why did it matter? Why was it so crucial? Um, well, the ability to run long distances is a physiological trait that human beings have that supersedes any other. Cheetahs can run 60 miles an hour for a few seconds, and then they have to sleep for half the day to make up for the energy expenditure. We can run all day. People have ultra marathons. There are 100 mile runs that people engage in. There are tribes in Africa that will literally run their prey to death when they hunt. That's what they do is they just follow them. They don't move fast, but they move fast enough to keep up with them so that eventually when they have to rest because they can't outlast us, they're just sitting there. So a fundamental part of what helped us secure our position in the food chain was our ability to run. It's because of our proportionally long legs relative to the rest of our body. Uh, so we're really designed for this. And also our arms. The fact that we have those long legs makes us ideal to throw things. You see like the Planet of the Apes movies that came out, the idea of like chimps throwing spears and things at us. That's it's pretty ridiculous. And it's not because they don't have the strength because their arms are actually very powerful. It's that their legs aren't long enough proportionally to be able to throw. Because something you learn, let's say in boxing, is that the strength doesn't come from the arms. It comes from the comes hips. From the it's that twist. It's, mm -hmm. it's all in the footwork, as they say. And it really is. Our ability to aim comes from the eyes and our ability to throw comes from our legs. That we can throw spears. Chimps couldn't really do that. They can underhand things, but not with any accuracy. But we can aim and we can throw and we can hunt in a way that nothing else can. And that's ingrained deeply in our genetics. It's in our bones and our blood. And it's been there for millions of years leading up to where we are. And so what happens when you take people that are that and they live in extreme comfort for so long that they forget that about themselves, right? That gets very confusing very quickly. And I think that informs why a lot of people are very confused by their situation in the West and why there's such a, a serious crisis of meaning and a desperation to find what one's purpose is. Uh, because 
we are wired to know that there is there's danger out there, that there's threat, right? Our history has been tainted by uh, being hunted by predators, being killed by viruses, plagues, massive violent natural disasters. That's a part of our heritage. It's, it's shaped everything that we do. Um, and yet we've now reached a point of such extreme customization in our lives that we just sort of feel entitled to peace and we expect it. And sometimes, you know, the most anxious moment one might have in a day is when maybe the, the power flickers for a moment and they didn't save their work. And now they get angry and call the power company because they didn't maintain unflinchingly consistent service at all times. How dare they? That's where we're at. <laughs> that's extraordinary and that's really precious. And again, highly dependent on lots of things working out. So when you take predators that are expect threat and expect the opportunity to hunt and make it so it's no longer really appropriate to hunt and the closest most of us get is sports and business, um, which is kind of like porn in a sense. It's like, you know, plenty of people like porn, but would they take it over the real thing? Oh, so you're yeah. saying it's like a simulation of, of danger a simulation and challenge. that only gets you so far. Yeah. Uh, and if you're, and I think that lacking that there's something deep, deep in us that a lot of people are feeling, but are, are struggling to articulate. And I think that lacking there, that lacking of, of real obvious overt threat right in front of you is gnawing at a lot of young people in our age demographic. And I think it informs things like, let's say the, uh, the social movements and protests that you see that are so popular in young people. And uh, often, ironically, the crowds that gather are not the people really being affected by the topic they're protesting. They're oftentimes well-educated, middle to upper-class college kids. And those kids are really in a position of high comfortability. If you have the ability to borrow money for student loans, you're actually in a higher rung already than people who don't. A lot of times the people at the lowest end of the economic scale, the ones who are actually affected by the things that are being protested, they don't have the time to protest or the will because they have existential threat. They're worried about being able to feed themselves. They're worried about the guy down the street in the trap house who they might end up on the block with at the wrong time of night. They have that. So they know what it's like. It's the people that have the time to be bored that are oftentimes the ones that are out there because they have the resources to lose and they lack the challenge to feel satisfied. And I think it's important to talk about that framing of us, of our position at this moment in history and talk about just how rare and special it is to help understand why these things have value. Because again, if you have a few hundred years ago, talks of existential threat, that's just standard fare. It's only mm -hmm. special now because we've we've done such a great job at being dangerous that now we don't have to be. So I think that, yeah, you know, interesting way to put slack, it. Yeah. <laughs> if we slack, the tigers come back. Mm -hmm. That's the other part of that. It's like, you know, so I think it's important to remember that and to honor that and respect our legacy. And I think another thing that troubles people is a lot of young people have a shame about our legacy as a species. They're angry uh, about all the things that we've done to get here. And I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's a good starting place, because if you're ashamed of what you are, how can you embrace your advantages and make the most of them? Right. So I think my attitude towards that, I'm not ashamed of our history as a species. There's a lot of tragedy in it. But at the end of the day, I, I try and focus on the things that are really valuable in it and learn from the mistakes of others instead of um, looking angrily at it with discerning eyes and trying to wipe it out and destroy it. I don't think that's a useful attitude. Uh, so I think having that attitude is really helpful in encountering your own challenges. And I think if you can appreciate the history that you come from, you can make a better future for yourself, but it has to start with the right framing. So I like this topic right here and I want to come back to it, uh, mm -hmm. but 
before we do, before we do discuss this, I don't want to get too far from another question I wanted to ask sure. that's related to something you just mentioned. And you mm-hmm. talked about that uh, existential crisis, wherever, like that crisis of meaning that a lot of young people have. And for a lot of the young guys that be listening to this episode, I'm sure they're maybe reflecting on some of these things that you said. And they're kind of looking at that, looking at it from that perspective in their own life and mm-hmm. probably trying to see, see or ask themselves, what sort of meaning do I have in anything that I do? Is this all just a simulation? Is this all just kind of a game? Is it, is my job porn? Is sports yeah. all that? And the question I would ask you is, what would you say you've attached meaning to or where have you found that that danger in your life that you've mm-hmm. attached to that causes you to move forward in the way that you do? Sure. Simp- to simplify, what's your purpose? Yeah. So I've always loved solving problems and I've always loved understanding how things fit together and also how they come apart. That kind of goes hand in hand. And that lends really well to consulting work. And it's a big part of why I started the company is because that's what we do is we come in to organizations that have a problem of some kind. Sometimes it's organization wide, sometimes they're a struggling company, or sometimes they're really great. And they just have like that one thing that they want to sort out right? a whole broad spectrum of different situations we've ended up in. Um, but the thing that's at the center of it is always finding a way to take a complex situation, break it down into its basic parts and figure out, well, how can we make it work better? And I just, I love that so much. And my broad set of experiences, especially dealing with dangerous people and threats, has really helped me do that. We've chased off scam attempts at companies that could have destroyed them. You know, smaller businesses really are susceptible to a lot of scams. And um, there, we stopped and attempted an account takeover of the owner of a company that could have like, cleaned out their savings. So it would have been, it would have decimated them. And I know the guy is a family. It would have been tragic, but we stopped them because I knew what to look for, right? Uh, you know, we've other, other problems where sometimes a, a company is struggling uh, and it's, it's something where they will degrade gradually over a long time. And it's, which is, its own kind of hell in a way. Like we give a lot of credit to the the sharp, immediate dangers that are so obvious and in your face. But what about the ones that gradually decay? Those are sad in their own way. And um, if you, uh, having dealt with other kinds of threats, like let's say the CIS, so that was that was a long term kind of threat. It's one that's always literally in the back of my mind, right? And knowing how to be cognizant of threats that are looming and lingering and take a while. Uh, to, to emerge was helpful there too, because it's helped me identify, okay, well, this is something where it's not a big deal right now, but I can imagine in 10 years, it could be a huge deal. So let's handle it now. And I can speak to that in a way where I can help them understand this might not cost you a lot in the immediate, but over time it will. And maybe it costs you a little upfront to solve the problem, but it's going to save you a whole lot more. A lot of times I find myself using the phrasing, this might cost you this now, but it's a lot cheaper than a lawsuit. And if, and if you don't solve this problem here, you're maximizing your risk that you'll have one. And, and that tends to get people to pay attention. So it's helped me identify different kinds of threats that work at different paces and then also understand how to deal with the kinds of people, uh, the stakeholders in a business um, and, and help them understand it and then produce solutions to that problem. So it's directly benefited my career for sure because we're brought in to solve problems that are the product of, of bad actors or human error or economic problems, anything, right? Um, so it's definitely helped me there. And I find a great deal of meaning in that because it makes it worth it. You know, that's another component of it. I think is like struggle has value in that it can instill confidence in you, but there's an extra level of satisfaction when you know that you took that thing and you made it into something great. You know, you, you created a real solution and you can track it back all the way to where it started, where you first learned the skill and a bad experience. There's something about that that I find very poetic and very satisfying. So yeah, that's that's how I use it. I use it in my career. Yeah. Thank you for that. And oh, yeah. 
that reminds me. So I'm reading a book right now called The War on Boys by uh, Warren Farrell. Yes, excellent book. Mm-hmm. And something that he talks about in there is, uh, and this is also something I got from another video I just watched. I forgot. I'll have to send it to you uh, for you to check out after the fact. Yeah. But they talk about how like nihilism is something that's affecting a lot of young men in our age range mm-hmm. and how it's resulting in some of these things that you're seeing going on in society, like school shootings that just happened not too long ago yep. and all the ones in the past, too. But if my understanding of it is correct, the bottom line of it is that a lot of young men don't really see the point in anything that they're doing or the value you know, of their lives or, you know, for that fact, other humans lives. And yep. so instead of taking positive approaches to life, like how you just described with you solving problems by helping people to fight against those dangers that they have going on with their companies, some guys are taking the complete opposite route to where they're getting into dangerous activities. And so what would be your response to a guy that's, you know, watching the, uh, the nihilism type stuff that is reading a lot of Friedrich Nietzsche, um, Nietzsche. or Nietzsche, how do you say it? Yeah. <laughs> and is uh, kind of going down that rabbit hole, you could say. Sure. So that is a very, it's a very complicated issue. I, I, we can always have a follow-up to flesh that out more because there's a lot of nuance there. I don't want to, I want to do it justice if I'm going to speak in detail. I can mm-hmm. speak very briefly on that and I can say, there are a lot of forces right now. I, I When I was building up the company, I also taught. I, I was a programming instructor and I've taught hundreds of young boys. Um, and there was a pattern I always noticed when I was talking to them. And it was and I was an after school program that I ran. Um, and I would ask them how school was. And they almost always said it sucked. Um, and I realized that the most satisfying education they were getting in a given day was this one hour after school program that I was running once a week. And so I, I better do a damn good job because they needed something. Right. And. So I, I got a lot of meaning in that, but I also saw just how widespread, you know, the frustration a lot of these kids were facing and a lot of times where it came from. And it's very multifactor. There's a lot of different forces that have been conspiring over decades to create the situation that we're in. It's a combination of the discouraging of fatherhood and, and the devaluing of it. It's a combination of uh, the presence of a lot of messaging about what boys shouldn't be, but the lack of leadership of what they should be. I think that's why I'd say Jordan Peterson resonates with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't just say, well, don't do this. He also says, do this which is, is like, there's a difference between criticizing people for doing things wrong and showing them how to do things right. And there's been a lot of criticism of boys, but there's been very little real leadership because I think a lot of people are afraid to say, we'll do this because then they have to deal with the pathological critics. And it's so much easier to be a critic and just say what not to do and never have to have solutions than it is to say, we'll do this because you won't always be right. You're going to fail. You'll make mistakes, but at least you're trying and that's worth it, I would say. So for boys who are moving down that path of nihilism broadly, um, well, for starters, do not give up on your connections with people that you have. If you have anyone in your life who's even a remotely positive connection, hold on to that person and and do. And it, it, sometimes, especially, it can be hard to evaluate if they're really trustworthy or not. Especially if you're in a point of paranoia and you're very miserable. Um, but I would say, if they're willing to sacrifice for you, that's a really good indicator that there's someone worth holding on to. Right. If, if they have plans and you need them and they're willing to like give those up, you don't want to abuse that. You don't want to be codependent. But like if they're willing to, you know, change their schedule or, or give up something for you, that shows you that they they give a damn. That's a special thing because there are seven billion people on this planet, but very few of them would ever really give something up for for someone else repeatedly unless they mean something to them. So that's worth holding on to. That's worth uh, exploring and knowing more about. And also, if you're down the path of, of listening to people who talk about why life doesn't matter, um, why 
nihilism is away and why there's no point in being. Well, at least you're the counterpoint, right? Because otherwise you're fixating on one side uh, of a fight and you're only understanding one dimension of it, which is shortchanging yourself. Because it's almost to say that you can't handle hearing conflicting information. That's not strength. That's weakness. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of times there's this belief that you, there's a strength in like, uh, in believing that things don't matter, like it's a brave position or something. That's not strength. That's weakness. If you can't expose yourself to the things that say otherwise, well, why not? Right? Strong people can expose themselves to danger, to threat, threat, not just to their body, but also their beliefs. And if you can come out the other end after being exposed to threat of your beliefs and still be okay, then well, clearly you have strong beliefs. But if you can't, well, then maybe it's time to reevaluate your position. Right? I appreciate you bringing up relationships because this yeah. is something I think a lot of guys struggle with across the board and just generalizing. Mm-hmm. But um, so many of us feel like we have to do things alone or we may not prioritize keeping those connections right. with people. And in a way, we kind of dehumanize everybody else in, in the process. And so I'm glad that you mentioned that because in a way, I feel like if more guys put effort towards making themselves the type of person that could foster relationships and maintaining those good relationships to keep that positivity in their life, it might not even get to the point to where they get that deep down the rabbit hole in the first place. And so I'm happy that you brought that up. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, relationships matter. I can say that I had a lot of really rough times growing up. Obviously I was exposed to a lot of threat and that tends to Mm-hmm. It didn't. Un, it, I wasn't unaffected. You know, I uh, there were some some dark moments for the, me there, but I can always say that every time something got really bad, there was always someone, always someone there. Um, the uh, the time I got beat down by a group of guys, actually, two people I'd never met before stood up for me and they stopped them, which was really remarkable. It felt almost Hollywood in a way. It was like that sort of thing you see in movies, but you think it doesn't happen in real life. Sometimes mm-hmm. it does. And it did for me. And they definitely, they instilled faith in me that there are people out there that will engage in, in altruistic acts uh, because it just seems like the right thing to do. And that was really special to me for sure. So I can confirm that has happened at least once in the history of humanity, which means it can happen again, which is a good thing. Right. And actually years Uh later, one of the guys uh, who was involved in that beating reached out to me on Facebook and he apologized which was pretty amazing. He said, you know, I'm really sorry I did this. I just wanted to fit in. And he saw these other guys doing this and he's, he wanted in on it. And he was like, you know what? I forgive you, uh, which was a great thing. So like sometimes people do change. They do come around and they realize the error of their ways and they will also own it. Um, that's really remarkable, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so definitely, yeah, those connections matter. I always had someone in the end. Uh, there was always someone there. Um, and, and part of that is because I was willing to look for them. I didn't give up on looking for people. There, there's a saying that good fortune prepare, presents itself to those who are prepared to receive it, which is to say that luck is not just some cosmic thing that happens. It's to say that you maximize, they call it your surface area of luck, which is to say the more, the more you put yourself out there, the more available you make yourself for lucky things to happen, the more likely it will. That's preparing yourself to be, to receive that luck. If if you're maintaining good relationships with good people, you're more likely to be in a situation where they will have your back when you need them. Right. Preparing yourself for the opportunity. Yeah. I like it. Mm -hmm. And to spin back to another topic that I wanted to uh, talk to you about, you had vaguely touched on it uh, at the end of one of the other things that you were saying, you mentioned uh, 
the importance of history and how it's served a major function in your outlook on life, how it's shaped in any way. And one of the things that you mentioned that I know I've seen pretty often, at least like in the past, I'll say 10 years, is you talked about the disrespect of history and how people seem to want to distance themselves from it. And so we can talk about that. The first thing that came to mind for me is, you know, the tearing down of uh, different statues, uh, erasing the names of uh, past leaders from from monuments, from highways, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Even stuff that went on my own college campus, uh, we had something similar going on. And that's the first thing that popped into mind. And so I'm assuming maybe that's kind of what you were getting at. Definitely. Yeah, there is. um, And it's not a bizarre behavior because it's by no means the first time it's been done. And we also can't even know when it's been done in the past because if people destroyed records of history, how would we know? Right. But we're seeing it happen. And there are definitely times where we know it's been attempted and and not succeeded. So it stands to reason it's a a human behavior that's proliferated throughout our history is the destruction of history in a way. A repudiation of established institutions and orders. It's like a giant middle finger to what is. And that is a serious threat because it guarantees that you'll just repeat the same mistakes, right? And there's so much you can learn from the past to make sure you don't repeat the mistakes. Uh, And you can't control other people. Like if people are going to tear down statues, you probably can't stop them. If people are going to burn history bricks, you probably can't stop them. But you can be sure you buy a copy and you can be sure you read it. And you can be sure you have a memory of it. That's a great way of preserving things, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Is at least if you invest yourself in remembering, because it's never a strategic advantage to forget things, right? Like if someone else wants to try and wipe out a record or something, well, that is actually a really bad idea for them because you'll still remember. So (laughs) that's not the best strategy and it tends to lose long-term. And I think, also, you can help understand your, your own present, your own self by looking for other people who have gone through struggles similar to yours, because history often is referred to in terms of linearity, like, you know, we have dates that happen in a specific order, uh, but oftentimes it can be more effectively modeled as cycles. Maybe the names and the locations change, but the, the emotions and the motivations and the themes throughout it ripple in circles over and over again. And it's very traceable to notice that. And I think people that are best positioned to manage their lives most effectively are the ones who know where they're at in their respective cycles of existence. You know what's going to happen before it does by looking at the cycles of the past for people in similar positions. I myself have taken inspiration from people in the sciences and also uh, guerrilla fighters, actually, uh, in various conflicts over the past few centuries. There's a lot to be learned from them. If you want to understand how to invert your situation, there's no better examples to look at than the guerrilla fighters, because they're really the the prime example of how to take a disadvantage and turn it into an advantage. One of my favorite books is Sun Tzu's The Art of War, which is between 23 and 2,500 years old. This is a very old book with some really deep ancient wisdom in it. And it's not just about warfare. It's about human competition and collaboration. It's about both. And there's a really... uh, wonderful passage, a number of passages throughout it, but towards the end, he he basically sums up what makes the great general. Um, And it's a person who can see when advantage becomes disadvantage and when disadvantage becomes advantage. 
And that is to say that, like I, I talked about the language trap earlier, we talk about things as good or bad, and rarely are they ever good or bad. And it's the same thing with advantage and disadvantage. A good example, one you might hear people saying is, I feel underestimated. That's a common complaint. That's a common complaint a lot of the social movements and protests we're talking about is a frustration that established orders and hierarchies do not respect a person by a certain dimension of however their group identity or whatever is. It's like, well, I feel underestimated. I feel underutilized. That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is, so you have the element of surprise, right? Right. Which is a huge strategic advantage in any endeavor. The element of surprise has helped small businesses outcompete massive corporations. It's helped small fighting forces topple empires, literally. Why would you not want the element of surprise? Your mm -hmm. opponent's handing it to you. Take it. They're just going to complain about it. Right. So right. if you can invert your ad, and that's something I learned from them, from, from studying a lot of these different revolutions that have happened over. I mean, everyone from, from George Washington and T. Lawrence to Mao Zedong and General Vawin Zapp. Like across the spectrum, regardless of, of their belief structure, they all employed very similar tactics to get what they wanted and worked because they were willing to acknowledge when advantage had become disadvantage and when disadvantage had become advantage. And they inverted every situation they could to gain the maximum advantage that they could. And it all starts with that shifting of attitude. Whatever position you're in, seeing the, not looking on the bright side, but seeing the advantages in it, you know, and using that. Hey, positivity seems to be a lot more functional. <laughs> but, yeah, um, for sure. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And if we could take a little bit of a pivot, mm -hmm. uh, the thing that comes to mind for me when we're talking about, I know we talked about uh, making sure to remember the history that's potentially being erased, but more so the lines of what I was thinking along is it kind of goes to something else that you say later about drawing that line at good and bad and maybe not thinking of things just in black and white like that, mm -hmm. because a lot of the conflict is coming from one side let's say, siding with, with this part of history saying the good should outweigh the bad, the other side saying the bad is worse than the good. Right. And then that's where that conflict comes in as a, where they say, okay, should it, should this be celebrated? Should this person have a monument, a statue, their right. name on whatever landmark or not? And so that's the thing where I feel like it's something that you can't, you don't, you don't really come up with like a, it's hard to come up with like a perfect answer for it. Uh, because as you can see, different sides of different priorities, you know, different morals and standards. And also it can be a racial thing too. Uh, the, the preservation of your history, whether you like parts of it or not, that's the, that seems to be the thing that creates the most conflict. Right. Yeah. And <clears throat> preserving, I, th I think preserving your own history it, it's challenging because people don't like to stand still and we don't like to keep things the same ever. We can't. It's part of, it's part of our nature. Again, as people, as, as predators too, we move, right? We're, we're nomadic for the vast majority of our own history. It's only recently that we've settled down. And even so, like, have we really, you know, uh, the map of Europe is very different now than it was 60 years ago. There was an East and a West Germany. Now there's one. And even that Germany was a very different Germany in the forties and so on. Like we're a very fluid species. We move and we shift like water and we change where we are and our own. And then an extension of that is our own interpretation of our own history changes. Right. Um, Christopher Columbus was heralded as, as a fantastic man for a long time. And now he's uh, being torn down. But it, frankly, it's very possible that in a few hundred years or so, 
someone will find use in him again and he'll be celebrated again. You never know. It's funny how, how historical figures like that work. You brought up Nietzsche earlier. Nietzsche was celebrated at the time, but with some skepticism. And then when Nazi Germany rose to power, his sister, who was a Nazi, Nietzsche was not, tried to accredit some of his beliefs to Nazism. And then, and thus he became sort of a persona non grata and intelligentsia for a while until someone else later down the line um, revealed that no, in fact, it was his sister using his words for propaganda purposes, and he was not a believer in, in these beliefs. And now it's acceptable to read Nietzsche again. So the same guy, same ideas have changed in their interpretation and their use because different parties with different interests showed up and disappeared. Right. So, so even our own interpretation of history shifts quite a bit. And you can attach yourself to the modern flavor of the month as to how people feel. And that's a great way to make sure you are always confused. <laughs> I think it's important that you, you come to some decisions about, well, okay, I'm going to look at this. This is the value that I've, I've pulled from this, this time in history and this, this character and this story. And that's useful to me. And maybe I'll reevaluate it every once in a while, but I don't think it's necessarily the greatest idea to change your interpretation of people just because everyone else is saying so. You know, because then that you can deprive yourself of some really valuable lessons. Um, it was Mark Twain uh, who said, if you find that um, you agree with popular opinion, it's time to reevaluate your position. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes that is the case. So, so no, I don't think it's, it's necessarily the great idea to be married to whatever the current zeitgeist is of feeling towards a specific historical figure or time. I think it's really valuable to try and, and understand it on your own and ideally try and read past interpretations of the past, not just the present interpretation of the past, because then at least you can see how things have changed. And then you can ask yourself, well, why is it this person was talked about in a positive light then? And now they're not. What changed? Did I change? Did someone else change? Did they change? Because they're dead. So they're probably the same. Right. So I think that's a valuable process to go through is, is don't just learn about your history. Learn about how your history is evaluated throughout history. Hey, thank you for that. And yeah, sure. In a way, I feel like looking at it from that perspective makes it to where, you know, when you get to these points where people get up in arms about history, maybe taking that mindset of seeing what we valued in that person to give them that position or giving their recognition in the first place and looking at, well, hopefully if those things are positive, right. uh, just moving from that and, and taking that as something to learn from. Because I know at least on A&M's campus, because that's, that's where I went to school, mm-hmm. we have a, a statue that's in the front of the, uh, the administration building. And it's a guy that, uh, at new rumors, they used to be part of the clan. He was a, uh, he was a Confederate general. And so mm-hmm. it caused a ton of controversy, especially whenever the, uh, the different police killings are going on. I know like with the George Floyd issue too, like it caused, uh, a lot of, uh, animosity on campus about that because whenever those things happen, it brings up a lot of racial tension. Right. And so that was just something that, it was really kind of hard for me to take a side on. I really think there was a side that could be taken because it felt like taking a side either way was kind of not being fair, like discrediting uh, the good or or bad that the person did because the argument was made whether or not he was being celebrated for his contributions to the Confederacy or his contributions to the school. And it really just depends on, I guess, perspective or how you interpret it. Right. And, and there's, yeah, there's a great example exactly of, of as to how, how dynamic opinions can be and how celebrated for one reason or the other, like it depends on who you ask, 
So if, if public opinion is so fractured like that, if you can have a thousand arguments on one side and on another, then they kind of cancel each other out in a way. It's not that there's one clear winner that one is just objectively by some cosmic sense right. It comes down to, well, what, what, what matters to you? What does this do for you? And sometimes, oftentimes, the right answer for you is you don't have to have a public opinion. You can have a private opinion. It doesn't have to impact other people's behavior. You don't have to proclaim it to the world, right? You can have your thoughts and you can think those thoughts and take the lessons you do and move on. Um, and I think that is a very valuable lesson to learn. And it's, I think it's something that's been lost, um, a submission to fate and circumstance. How often do you hear people use the word fate? Curiosity, does it, you hear it all? Really. I don't, don't think that's a word I hear often. Yeah. Fate was a word used extremely commonly for the vast majority of our history. It's only until very recently that words like fate stopped being used. It's seen as archaic. And yet for like 99% of humanity uh, of our time on this earth, fate was very common. And I think fate is often thought of as like a, a, a religious thing. And it can be in a sense. But I think more broadly, what it means is submission to things you can't control. Um, and there are many things that you cannot control, even if you can understand them. Doesn't mean you can control them, right? Uh, it's often said that the Enlightenment gave with one hand and stole from another with another. And it, the examples of what that means are you know, pretty cliche at this point. Like major corporation leverages big data to, you know, understand exactly what their customers want or whatever. And there were some management had had a gut feeling that this was a bad idea, but no, the data says it except the data was gathered in the wrong way. And the people with the gut feeling, they could tell, they just had a feeling and that's not a good enough reason to make an executive decision anymore. And then the big data is used and then the operation fails catastrophically. And those people with the gut feeling feel vindicated, but the company's out of money. So it doesn't matter, right? Like sometimes just having lots of information, lots of research isn't really all that helpful if it's not used right. And so there was definitely a robbing that came from, from all this available information, all these new analytical processes we have, and something that we've lost, I think, in all of that noise and all of that extreme customization and abilities to predict things is we've forgotten that we are not in control of so much of our own existence, and that's okay. It's not only okay, it's necessary. I think it's led to a supreme arrogance in a sense that there's a sense of entitlement that we should be in control. And that not only, and to say that we should be in control, that we should know exactly how the world should be is to presuppose a number of things, right? It's to presuppose that you as an individual, you and your one brain can see the world in all its entirety, at least all the things that matter in it. And you can contain that in here. And then you can in there make the right decision of exactly how it should be for everyone else. And then also that you can enact that. Those are three big assumptions that are very difficult to justify. So I don't know if you've met people before, but they tend to have limitations, right? Uh, that would prevent them from justifying all three of those presuppositions. So clearly there's a whole lot we're missing, right? The question is, can you let yourself accept that or not? And if you can, then it's a lot easier not to have opinions on things. It's a lot easier to just be okay with where you're at. And you brought up existential threat and, and, uh, life or death experiences and what that does for you. And I think one of one of the most valuable things I pulled from that was it showed me just how little I know and how okay that is. Because after all those things, I didn't expect to go in and, and them to tell me that I had things in my brain. I didn't expect for someone to take a swing at me, but they did. And I reacted well enough. And here I am. 
So even if I don't expect everything, that's okay. I think that's actually one of the best lessons that I've learned in my 24 years of life, that you don't need to have an opinion on everything. You don't need to speak on everything. Because one thing I'll say is that it saved me a lot of time, energy, and it's brought me a lot more peace uh, yeah. than my younger self was able to experience whenever you wanted to sure. be highly opinionated and have something to say about anything and everything. And that yeah. brings me to my last question as we're wrapping up on time. The question I like to ask you is what would you say is the best piece of advice you've ever received? And that could be from a mentor, family, or it could be just from a book that you've read. Ooh, ooh that's one piece of advice. Oh, that's hard. Give me a, a channel of some kind, like an ass, a dimension of life so I can narrow it down a little, like the advice about something, because otherwise I don't know if I could do just one. Uh, <laughs> or let's say the piece of advice that, that is uh, most shaped your moral outlook on life, you know, your principles, what you, the rules that you live life by. Mm. From like an ethical sense. Right. Okay. Um, piece of advice from a specific person that was given to me or a book, uh, or, a book or something like that. Anything. Um, I will actually, you know, I'm actually going to pull from the art of war again. There's a really great line in there that I think is really beautiful. Um, fight like water, rule like stone. It's a very old way of phrasing something, but I think there's some really deep meaning in that. It means it's more, it's not just about fighting, but it's, it's broader. And what it means is that there are times when you have to be dynamic and there's times where you have to be static and both have a purpose, right? And, and I think not just like governments or armies, but, but people who know when to be like water and when to be like stone and it being very successful. Um, and the, the idea, specifically within the context of the book and when he talks about it, he's talking about the difference between how militaries should conduct themselves and how politicians should conduct themselves, actually. And when he says, like, rule like stone, what he means is that, uh, and he does flesh it out of it, he talks about how if uh, leaders change things too quickly, it'll it'll be very confusing for people and they won't know how to manage it and, and they will fail as a leader and the people will fail. Um, and, and thus they have to rule like stone, which means if you're going to change things, do it gradually in a way where people can adapt. Right. And that informs to our natural timing, biological organisms of any kind, uh, they, they can only adapt so quickly. Right. Most species, if the environment changes by a degree in their environment, they will die completely. Uh, we're, we're actually really special in that we've adapted to basically every biome on this planet. But that's unique to us. And but we still have our own limits. Right. And you have to work within them. Um, and on the flip side of it, we'll fight like water. What does that mean? It means don't get too rigid in one strategy, be able to, to ebb and flow, know when advantage and disadvantage change, right? And, and that it's not just in, in fighting, but it's also in relationships, right? It's, it's with people. It's like, well, you can't always take for granted that your friends are exactly the people that they used to be. Sometimes they change, right? Sometimes someone who used to be a great fit for you isn't anymore. Uh, sometimes someone who didn't used to be a great fit for you is, right? Sometimes you can go from competing to collaborating. And it's important to, to remember that, to have your finger on the pulse and to notice when things are changing and be able to adapt with them, whether it's in a conflict or a relationship or uh, your job or anything in between. So, so I think there's, there's so much deep meaning contained within such a simple phrase, fight like water, rule like stone. I really love that. Um, that's what I try and do. So, yeah. Right. Thank you for that. Absolutely. And so guys, that wraps up another episode of the Improvement Podcast. If you enjoyed the content today, make sure to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any platform that you listen to it on. 
And uh, if you'd also like to find more content, make sure to check out the website that is improvementpodcast.com. And uh, Tony, for anyone that likes to find you, where should they go? Absolutely. Um, well, if you'd like to find uh, X Factor, that's really my uh, primary place to look us up. You can go to xfactorconsultants.com. We have a lot of our recent work up there. Um, if you're looking for any website or app development or video production work, we'd be happy to work with you. All right. Thanks for coming on to the show. Absolutely. Have a good one. You too.